Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Last night at the CNN Town Hall, it was a no-holds-barred discussion between Jake Tapper, CNN's Jake Tapper, and Paul Ryan about um, Obamacare, the president-elect's tweeting, um, the priorities of the, of the new Congress. But the strongest and most poignant moment happened really at the very beginning. Speaker Ryan comes out, says, hello, hello. Answers one question from Jake Tapper about the state of Obamacare repeal. That, of course, is the congressional effort to repeal and replace Obamacare at some point. Um, now they say, they promise, they pledge that they'll repeal and replace Obamacare with the snap of a finger simultaneously somewhere in the first hundred days, the speaker said. And then the first question came from a man by the name of Jeff Jones. Jamie, what did Jeff Jones ask the speaker? When it was passed, I told my wife we would close our business before I complied with this law. Then, at 49, I was given six weeks to live mm. with a very curable type of cancer. We offered three times the cost of my treatment, which was rejected. They required an insurance card. Thanks to the Affordable Care Act, I'm standing here today alive. Thanks to the Affordable Care Act, Mr. Speaker, who you just pledged to repeal, I'm standing here alive. A story shared by thousands of say. people across the country. There are so many people with that story. By the way, down to the fact that there are Republicans who hated the Affordable Care Act until they needed it, and then it saved their lives. We should mention also that Jeff Jones was a lifelong Republican, lifelong Republican. who worked yes. for Reagan and Bush. Yes! Yeah. Like, you hear that story one time, and if you have any semblance of a conscience, you say, okay, you know what? we got to do right by this guy. we got to do right by the other folks out there that have these same problems. we got to get this fixed. It's time to, it's time to stop tearing this down, accept the fact that there are plenty of good things here. Does it need to be worked on? Sure. Did you win an election? Yes, you did. They did. Oh, I agree. They did. They won the Electoral College, yeah. <laughs> yes. And but, but, but you have to represent everybody, right? You have to represent these people, Republicans and Democrats, who will get things like this and will never be able to recover without some help. Right. Now, Paul Ryan is good at confronting moments like this one. I once in 2010 traveled to five different town halls with him over a period of two days and saw him interact with constituents when they were very, very angry at him when he first released that Paul Ryan budget. Uh, and so he knows how to handle this moment. And what he proceeded to do was to explain to the man that while he's we, we have that clip, right, saying how happy Paul Ryan is that Jeff Jones is still alive. Let's play that, Jamie. First of all, um, 
I'm glad you're standing here. <laughs> I mean, really, seriously. I mean, uh, can, can, can no, I, really. Uh, can, can I say one thing? I hate to interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, can yeah. I say one thing? I want to thank President Obama from the bottom of my heart because I would be dead if it weren't for him. Keep talking, Paul. <laughs> Keep talking, Paul. Just, just, just like, just shut up. What a worm. They, they then talked about some kind of. <laughs> I mean, really. Some football team thing I didn't understand. There was like some some strange bonding that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Paul Ryan uh. moved on to answering the question. He said to him, "I appreciate the fact that you're still alive and that you have uh, Obamacare, which helped you receive the treatment you needed to save your life." However, the same cannot be said for Americans across the country whose premiums are climbing higher than ever. Where are you from, sir? Oh, Arizona. In Arizona, premiums have increased by so-and-so percent. This many insurers have left the market. We Republicans have a better way. What we would do is place people like you with a pre-existing condition into a high-risk pool that would allow them to get insurance somehow. We would also then give a tax, a tax credit to people to purchase coverage across state lines so that they don't have to get the kind of insurance that Obamacare dictates, but can find the policy that best suits their needs. How did I do? That's pretty good, right? That's, that's like good. what they typically say. Yeah, that's and that's, that, that's what Paul Ryan said. And he said that some version of that plan will be will make up the Republican replacement, which he promised will come down uh, in the next couple of weeks. Now, you know, there's going to be a lot of reporting around what this means and what it means for people like Jeff Jones, who has a pre-existing condition, who is a cancer survivor, who's going to be put into a pool of people who are very, very sick and what it's going to mean for the cost of that coverage, which is going to be very, very high. And how do we know that? Because before Obamacare, Peter, there were 33 states that had these high-risk pools where they took the sickest people who couldn't get coverage anywhere else because they were so sick. Insurers in the free market did not want them. So they went to get coverage in these high-risk pools. They said, I have cancer. I can't get coverage. The state said, we have a whole pool of people who have cancer, who have all kinds of conditions, who can't get coverage. Come join our pool to get coverage. And the person came into the pool full of sick people, and they realized very quickly that because all of these people constantly need coverage, that the money in premiums that they pay into the pool does not cover the money that goes out to pay for the treatments. <laughs> and therefore, these pools spiral out of control and fail. Because to sustain these pools, Peter, you need literally billions and billions and billions of dollars that Republicans will never, ever, ever give to the states, appropriate to the states. So um... so you'll be in a situation where you're going to be spending, the average before Obamacare was you were, you were spending about a quarter of your income on these high-risk pools mm. because the premiums were so high. In the kind of structure that Republicans are going to establish, it's going to be far higher than that. In fact, it's going to be entirely unaffordable, and these pools are going to fall apart. And how do we, wait, one more thing here, and how do we know that? Because before Obamacare went online, Obamacare actually established the very high-risk pools that Paul Ryan so passionately talks about. And what happened to these high-risk pools? Tell me. They failed. Oh, no kidding. 
because there was not enough money to cover these very, 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 very sick people because they lacked the healthy people who balanced the risk pool and allowed for it to function properly. End scene. With us here to discuss President-elect Trump's robust cybersecurity program is Joe Marks, cybersecurity correspondent at NextGov on Twitter at Joseph Underdash Marks Underdash. Yeah, I got to it a little bit late. Another oh, Joseph Mark stole it from me. That is a unique. Line. That is a unique Twitter handle. <laughs> Look, if you need me to take the other Joseph Mark <laughs> off air, okay, things can be done. And online, of course, at NextGov. How are we as a country with cybersecurity? Because President Obama was asked in an interview um, fairly early on into his presidency. I think it was in his first term of what keeps him up at night, and he said cyber warfare. That that really is the thing that he thinks is coming, and we all and, thought at the time, yeah, oh. cyber warfare. <laughs> <laughs> this so guy watches too many movies, oh. um, but it's clear that we do have a problem. So I guess what I'm saying is, how prepared are we as a country right now across the board, not just with with Democrats or Republicans, but across the board? How are we preparing for that? I mean, a lot of people would tell you that we are perhaps better prepared than any other nation, but we're also the most vulnerable. And the technology is just advanced much mm. faster than security has. And the Internet was not designed for security and things have been plugged into the Internet at such a rapid pace over the last decade. So, I mean, just look at the last two or three years. You know, we've had Sony and uh, now this, you know, each time we think that we have something set up, the ball moves. So, I mean, if you look at what happened in this last election, you know, we had a major breach and a major information campaign that, you know, wreaked havoc on the Democratic candidate. So it doesn't seem as if as prepared as we are. It doesn't seem as if we're in front of the ball at this point. And also see that we're just a gigantic target. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that probably doesn't help things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're the most cyber dependent nation on Earth by far. Mm. That's interesting, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I work at the Center for American mm -hmm. Progress and we are constantly uh, under the suspicion mm -hmm. that uh, that that we could potentially be <coughs> hacked or, or whatever the case may be and are trying to to take all kinds of of precautions. But, you know, the reason why, of course, we we had the breach and the reason why this is now an issue and all these vulnerabilities came to light is because of a coordinated effort by the Russian government to try and influence uh, this election. Um, uh, do you feel like the president's response to hacking throughout his administration, not just by the Russians, but you had what, North Korea, mm -hmm. uh, you had I mean, you had China, China you had earlier. Iran, you so had criminal a lot networks. Of, a lot of actors here mm -hmm. in this space. What, first of all, what has been the administration's response and do you feel it's been adequate in deterring actors from doing this moving forward? You know, someone much smarter than I, I was speaking to about this a couple of weeks ago. Get him in. Get him in here. <laughs> <laughs> you leave. Get him in. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, a longtime researcher in cybersecurity background in the Air Force who said, you know, uh, before uh, going into the final, I would have given them a B plus, uh, but they really, really botched the final. So 
with this latest episode <laughs> yeah. of Hacking. The Obama administration has done a lot on cybersecurity over the last eight years. Uh, there have been a lot of executive orders. They've set up um, a sanctions authority, so the, the, the sanctions authority that was slightly rejiggered in order to um, sanction Russian officials and Russian intelligence agencies. They established that. They established a thing called the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is essentially here's what the government thinks you, private sector, ought to be doing to secure your networks. Standards. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not a requirement by any means, but it's a thing if you don't want to get sued. You can point to this because no one mm-hmm. knows exactly what your uh, obligation is to your customers or clients to avoid, a cyber, to avoid a breach. You can point to this and say, hey, we are compliant with this. Please don't sue us. So that's been adopted relatively well across the private sector. Um, they have responded forcefully, including, you know, uh, indicting members of the the Chinese military um, and members of the Iranian uh, Republican National Guard for cyber breaches. And he brokered a pretty major, people thought it wasn't going to do much at the time, but it turns out to have been relatively successful agreement with Chinese President Xi Jinping to really tamp down on corporate espionage uh, from the Chinese government. So he's got a lot of things in his favor at this point. But again, you know, you look at the last campaign, it's tough to say that this has been an unvarnished success for the administration. So specifically, where did he drop drop the ball in uh, this latest case? What could he have done when he first learned, was it in June, July, mm. that the Russians had hacked the DNC, uh, possibly uh, other places as well? Well, you know, it's a thing that people have, uh, Michael Hayden and others have said, is that, you know, you want to call it a cyber problem. You want to call it a Russia problem. Really, it's a Russia problem and a cyber problem. There's also a China problem and a cyber problem. You know, probably, and uh, uh, Josh Ernest has, has effectively said this, too, you know, is this in the middle of a very political and heated campaign? The president is actively campaigning for Hillary Clinton to be his successor. Uh, I think there was probably some talk that if he had come out and pushed sanctions against Russia, done something much bigger earlier on to put this into context, it would have been seen as political and would have been a political football. And he expected, as most other people did, that Hillary Clinton would become president. And you could do something that would seem apolitical after the election. That said, you know, people, elections are, election and campaigns are breached most of the time. The Obama and McCain campaigns were both breached in 2008. That's regular espionage. It wasn't the breach that was uh, unprecedented. It was the release of the information. Mm. And, you know, once that happens, the information is out there and it's going to be released whenever it comes out. So, you know, and once Obama uh, allegedly spoke with Putin on the sidelines of, I believe, was the G20, there were some contacts between intelligence officials. You know, they say that nothing additional happened after this, including no additional... um, uh, penetrations of election networks themselves on election day, but the information was out there was going to be released. So, you know, once that happened, once it was, you know, released to, to DNC leaks and to WikiLeaks and elsewhere, the the bag. So are we then to believe that if the president spoke to uh, Putin <clears throat> and told him in firm terms, maybe used a couple of Russian words in there as well uh, (laughs) that I personally taught him, that uh, he has to stop this kind of behavior or else the United States would retaliate in some ways. And then the hacking stopped. Wouldn't that then follow that if President-elect Trump has a strong relationship Mm -hmm. with Putin or Tillerson, his nominee to be Secretary of State, has a strong relationship with Putin, then we are then safer uh, from cyber hacking, um, given those relationships, if the hacking stopped because of a personal conversation? 
there are a lot of question marks in that. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of uh, clauses in that. I don't know. I mean, it depends on whether you expect the U.S. and Russia relation to suddenly become rosy and wonderful right now. And I am uh, in no way a Russia expert, but that seems uh, uh, not guaranteed. <laughs> not a guarantee. <laughs> Um, but in terms of if we were to kind of suck the politics out of it and just think about because this is this feels like such a mm -hmm. not not a new area, but at least uh, an area that's bubbled up in a in a bigger way in 2016 than it has in the past. What are the deterrent tools or the tools we use as a nation to fight this cyber war? What are the right tools to use? Just taking the, polit the fact there was a political season, mm -hmm. it was in the middle of a campaign out of it. What can any administration do to deter um, actors who are working on behalf of either a government or rogue actors from, from engaging in this kind of behavior? The administration has been trying to put that together for essentially the last eight years. Uh, John McCain in particular has been pushing for a cyber deterrent policy from the Defense Department. They produced it. He was very unhappy with it because they essentially said uh, there are, is a huge tool bag of tools and we will use what we see fit. What they've done in the past is in the case of uh, Chinese commercial hacking, they indicted uh, five members of the PLA. Um, in the case of Sony, they leveled additional sanctions against North Korea. Obviously, North Korea is already pretty heavily sanctioned, so <laughs> uh, not clear entirely what that did. They, they uh, 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 indicted the a few Iranian National Guard members. Whether that has actually and, – and there's also a lot of diplomacy too, right? I mean, the, the chief cyber success of this administration, a lot of people would say, is the agreement with China. And obviously, you know, the indictments had something to do with that. The threat of sanctions had something to do with that. But in a lot of ways, it was probably old-fashioned diplomacy that, uh, that uh, produced that uh, relative detente. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Adam Smith, director at Every Voice. On Twitter, of course, of course, a must-follow on Twitter, at a Smith 83 Are you, is that because you are 83? Uh, y wow. Yes. Wow. That was, uh, wow. That Some was just age not, shaming that Igor's doing. That yeah. was so um, bad. Yeah. No, I think it was just 2007 when Twitter started, and I and you did that back then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then uh, my name is Adam Smith, so oh, it, Adam it's Smith? very difficult to get it any screen name that. that doesn't have a number in it. <laughs> now here's a here's Igor here, Volsky, by the way, not a problem. Yeah. Here's something that you should know, Adam. Uh, Igor has a really really hard time with pronouncing names. I'm so glad. So you should know that Smith. the three guests that we have on today's show, their names are Joseph Marks, <laughs> Adam Smith, and Matt Fuller. Great. Literally impossible to screw up. But you know what they used to do to me for for a while? They would book these names that I could never pronounce. Gabe De Benedetti. You okay. nailed it, dude. I now yeah. I now know his name very well because I butchered it four different times. And, and remember I remember our email friend, him with apology. Remember our friend from the Atlantic, Matt um oh, what was his I can't name? Do it. Matt I, Val, how do you say that? It's Is it Matt I can't even do it. What it's, what, say it's it? Matt Vassilogombros. Vagis Ogombros. 
Matt Vassilagambros. Matt Vassilagambros. Which Igor pronounced I, Matt Vagisilagambros. Sometimes I'm jealous of names like that. <laughs> yeah, right? It's a name of destiny. <laughs> so glad your name is Adam Smith. Adam Smith. Uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Jason Chaffetz from Utah, who spent the election leading up um, to November 8th promising to hold whoever is elected accountable, bragging about all the investigations the committee has conducted of Hillary Clinton. Um, Yesterday sent a letter um, to the, what is it, the Office of Government Ethics, right? Um, Suggesting that uh, he might look into what's going on in that office because of the public push that its director made in trying to force Trump to um, deal with all of his conflicts of interest properly. Yes, it's uh, it's it's outrageous. Walter Schaub, the head of the Office of Government Ethics, is a dedicated public servant. He was the counsel at the OGE during uh, President George W. Bush's administration. He's the been the head during Obama's administration, and he has done his job exactly as he's supposed to do. And it's it's just outrageous to me that uh, Chaffetz would not only send this letter, but he would th- he basically made a veiled threat in there to shut down the agency too. He he said in there. You know, we are in charge of reauthorizing you. That is nothing more than a threat that we can also get rid of you. And the other interesting thing is there was he called for a transcribed interview instead of an open hearing, which I think is interesting and why he doesn't want to do the open hearing. But it's ridiculous. You know, we started Congress. The first thing the House Republicans did was let's try to gut the House. Let's try to gut oversight of ourselves. Then the Senate Republicans said, you know what? We don't need to finish the vetting, the ethics vetting of the cabinet nominees. And now the end of the second week, they have the House Oversight Chair saying, actually, the, the, the head of government ethics should be quiet. It's like, what are they trying to hide? Exactly. I think every Democrat should be asking, what are they trying to hide on every issue? This ethics situation in his businesses, but also the Russian hacking. Why don't they want an independent investigation? What are they trying to hide? But to me, politically, I mean, it's such a disaster. This election was partly won because Donald Trump was able to make the case that Hillary Clinton is corrupt and that he's draining the swamp and he's cleaning up Washington. He's bringing ethics back into government. And in the first week, as you point out, yeah. they've done three, four major things that undermine where the public is on this front. It's going to catch up with them. I think that's right. You know, they're all they're, they're trying to get rid of ethics oversight. Donald Trump is appointing all these big donors to his cabinet. Uh, yesterday, he tweeted out that people should buy stuff at the company of a super PAC donor. You know, the, it's like I'm swimming here. We have to get our waiters on. It's we need some. It's just like it's a mess. And I do think that uh, people are going to be angry about it. And but- But the real question is, I mean, the reason why it was so effective against Hillary Clinton is, I think, two reasons. One is you had Republicans going after this every single day, making all kinds of innuendo, coming up with all kinds of scenario about how there could be corruption here. And the press really covered, A, those actions, and B, conducted independent investigations, trying to find all kinds of uh, links when it comes to Hillary Clinton. The question here then becomes, will Democrats be as disciplined in constantly pushing this story, in uh, doing all they 
they can, whether it be mock investigations and he, or mock hearings, I guess, since they don't have the gravel for these things, will they be able to stay united and push this message? And will the press then do their job as well? An, well? I have an answer to that question. Uh, well, we're optimistic I, here on Friday the 13th. I, ha- I, have, a, I have an answer. I, I do <laughs> think. I want to hear it. Uh, it's, it's a good question. You know, the Office of Government Ethics is a good example. Democrats don't like it either. The right. House Democrats don't right. like it. So right. the question is, will they, but it, it's a layup for them to, if Republicans try to attack it again for them to say, don't do this. They're trying to get rid of oversight. Um, the press, I think they have been okay so far in the nominees. Uh, you look at the coverage of Betsy DeVos and others. Um, I think if you look at the hearing, look at DeVos's hearings next week will be an interesting case where some Democrats seem to be saying they'll make a case about money in politics and corruption as part of that hearing. Uh, Betsy DeVos is, a, is like a Koch brother of Michigan. Uh, and I think that's a good example. But I do think that Democrats... sister. Yes, Coke sister, yes. Uh, And, uh, you know, people, I've been saying this for a very long time, uh, that people are really angry about money and politics and corruption. Uh, Donald Trump really uh, aired that anger for them. Um, And I think that when you start seeing examples of graft and corruption, people are going to stay angry about it. The issue is they also get cynical and Mm. they think, well, then everybody does it. Let's just stay home. Let's just not worry about it. Yeah. Joined now here in the studio by Matt Fuller, congressional reporter for the Huffington Post. Matt, hello. Thank you for joining us. We're here all very cozy at this table. Adam Smith, director at Every Voice is here, and some guy named Peter Ogburn just won't leave. So, Matt, what's (laughs) what's going on with uh, Obamacare repeal? There was this... Uh, idea and push by Republicans in Congress. They're going to repeal it first, then they're going to have this marvelous transition period of two, three, four, five years. What does it matter? And then the replacement that they haven't yet unveiled will kick in. Now that's been thrown out, thrown out the window. Donald Trump said on Wednesday, we're going to do it at the same time. Paul Ryan said last night at the CNN town hall, we're going to do it at the same time. How is that possible? Yeah, so yes and no on the marvelous transition period being thrown out the door. I still think that the transition period, strictly speaking of the repeal, Stands And what I'm hearing is it'll be a three-year transition, which is uh, not what conservatives wanted. They wanted a two-year or even a year-and-a-half transition. So there is some hope, I guess, that it's not aligned with an election three years out. Uh, Congress might even just delay that to a year, but which is what conservatives are concerned about and why they're sort of um, rebelling against this first repeal vote. They want some assurances before they vote for this. It's sort of a procedural thing to set up the, the repeal for the committees and whatnot. Um, so, right, you're hearing Trump says essentially simultaneously, probably the same day, maybe even the same hour, uh, which is, you know, how Congress works. And, <laughs> um, and Ryan doesn't really challenge him on that. He just sort of goes along with it and says, we're, we're in sync, we're in lockstep here, which is not the case, obviously, uh, because Paul Ryan does know how Congress works. Um, that and, famous Ryan backbone. Yeah, the Ryan backbone, uh, you know, and the flexibility there. Um so he's I mean, there's some distinction here, a couple of things about what they're actually in sync on. And um, they're saying, first of all, that there will be some replacement in the repeal. OK, so there's like some semantics to this whole we're in sync and this will come simultaneously. Uh, although the word that Ryan likes to use is concurrently, uh, which I think is a different word than simultaneously. Um, <laughs> we'll have to check Miriam's on that one. But So there is trepidation within maybe six, eight. 10 maybe now Republican senators of 
of going forward. Ten, with, yeah. Now is it ten now? Yeah, yeah. With Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson uh, of of moving forward with repeal without having a clear sense what the replace will be. Ron Johnson yesterday uh, on CNN. Uh, laying out the fact, really admitting that Republicans have no agreement about where they're going to go after they repeal Obamacare. Right. I, I will you know, freely admit that Republicans in the House and Senate don't have a total agreement on exactly what that thing's going to be, but the elements are pretty, pretty common. Well, I mean, we don't we don't know. We have some <laughs> elements and somebody is. He also went on to say in, the, in that in in that same interview that they're not going to do. And tell me if this is this is what you're hearing overall, that they're not going to do a single comprehensive bill, that they're going to go at it piece by piece, uh, which, of course, suggests that it's going to be even more of a mess. Right. It's not. It, it, it belies the measure. whole essentially simultaneous thing. Yes. Right? Again, yeah. the Senate doesn't work in like a. You know, we'll pass 10 bills in an hour sort of fashion. <laughs> um, right. And first of all, Ron Johnson, his Wisconsin uh, accent, that's just yeah, nice beautiful. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, talking about cheese curds is just, just as well. Um, yeah. You so, eat too much cheese, you're going to need that around McCarran. <laughs> won't be there for you. Um, <laughs> but we'll have some high risk pools for you. That's um, right. No. So, I mean, yeah, again, this idea that they are in lockstep with Trump, I, I just don't see it. They're saying, well, Tom Price, the, HH, the incoming HHS secretary, we assume, um, he'll be able to do some administrative action and, again, the some repeal in there. And then maybe they'll have one non-controversial bill that they can sort of do. And I, I know they're looking at um, trying to leverage the children's health insurance program for some sort of changes here. But it does look like a little bit that this repeal is not going to be as fast as they had once hoped, um, partly because I, a lot of re- a lot of Republicans are saying, so I'm supposed to just repeal this and trust that, you know, I'm going to get everything I want or even some of the things I want in a replacement. So that, that just doesn't seem to, I mean, they haven't held a hearing on a, on a re- replacement or repeal or anything. They have no idea what this will do to the insurance market. So yeah. what while- have they been doing for six years? Right. Benghazi. Well, right. A little bit Benghazi. of that. I mean, they've held some hearings on that, but it's never been with like real bullets, right? It's yeah. just it's this sort of constant. We got to repeal this, this job killer, right? Um, and they don't know, like, just repealing it will affect obviously the health insurance market and the plans that people are offered. Um, so while this plan seems to be in some trouble uh, yeah. with uh, members of of Donald Trump's own party, Democrats, Adam, I think have done a fairly good job in being united in the argument that if you break Obamacare, uh, you're going to have to deal with it. And uh, Chuck Schumer, to the surprise of some in D.C., uh, has been able to keep his caucus together on that very point. And they had a a voterama two days ago now, a day ago, I don't remember, uh, where they, uh, doesn't matter what a voterama is, I'll just say that um, they all kind of stood up at the end there at the final vote and loudly proclaimed why they're against Obamacare repeal. That seems promising to me, especially when you're in a place where you need 60 votes to replace a lot of the pieces of the law. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think the Democrats do need to stay united on this, just as united as Republicans were against Obamacare and how that worked for them. I think Democrats need to do this. I think that you're going to see all these stories. Like the last night in the town hall when the guy said, I would be dead if we didn't have Obamacare. I think you're going to see more of that. And, and then think- Paul Ryan dabbed. Right, right. Uh, and th- it's hard to respond to that. And uh, I think these going to be some, and, and I think they need to keep it together. Well, um, you, when you dab, it's not so hard. Yeah. <laughs> right. It might At not Cam be Newton best dabs. for like. Uh, you know. 
<laughs> it doesn't mean a lot for our democratic process that uh, Democrats and Republicans can't work together anymore, but I think politically it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. In '09, at the start of this with Obamacare, Democrats set out to try to craft something that Republicans could vote for and they could, you oh, know, the, the glory whole days. process there. That. Republicans aren't even pretending that that's a reality. Yeah. It's, right. it's, we're starting from the position of, well, we got to get 218 in the House and we got to get 60 or 50, whatever sort of weird math they're going to try to do here with uh, reconciliation and maybe slamming something through. So the Senate passed the reconcil- the budget uh, outline bill on Thursday morning, yes? Yeah, I mean like 1 a.m. 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. Yeah. Thursday morning. The House uh, is scheduled to vote on this today. today. Right. You suggested in the opening of this segment uh, that uh, it could be in trouble, it could go down. Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah, it, and I think it should be surprising. Um, so leadership has been, Republican leadership has been uh, suggesting this is an easy vote for us, we're fine. Meanwhile, if you're watching the votes this week, they're running around, uh, you know, during these things, try, trying to talk to conservatives and talk to the people who could vote against this thing. So what are the different forces here? Because yeah, there's it's two. not like they want to keep Obamacare. That's not why. Right. No, no. Fun. So, I mean, Republicans in general are united on this. There are some Republicans who acknowledge that getting rid of this could just be a shit show. And um you the realists. Talk, <laughs> and you, well, you can so the so the GOP moderates, right, are the ones who sort of know that like just ditching a Medicaid expansion is going to be disastrous for their states. And Republican governors who have right, expanded who Medicaid rebelling. have said this is a real problem. Right. And um so yeah, we're seeing this whole rebellion here from GOP moderates, but unfortunately there's only going to be a few of those guys who are going to vote against this first vote. Um, a lot of them see a distinction. Well, this just sets up the process for a conference committee, and then you know there's a whole there's a few other steps here before there's an actual repeal. So today there's only expected to be three or four GOP moderates voting against that. Mm. Um, then you have the conservatives who want sort of more firmer promises from leadership that hey we, they don't want the three year they want all the Obamacare taxes repealed they want to make sure Planned Parenthood doesn't get a dollar from the repeal. Um, so all those forces are kind of coming at them. And they're not getting those promises. So <clears throat> the question is, like, do they have enough votes with only three or four moderates voting against it? You have to put up around 20 to block this and as a negotiating point. And if you don't, then coming up just short of it looks pretty weak. Okay, so there's like this sort of delicate math here where maybe nine or ten of them vote against it with the three or four. So it kind of comes close to it and, and basically leadership says, well, we can't take these guys for granted, but it passed. And, you know, the leaders of the Free House Freedom Caucus, one of the conservative caucuses there, uh, they vote for it. So there's just there's a lot of like internal games here with 218. So if you were a betting man, which I assume you are, uh, what do you think the odds are of this thing failing? Yeah, I'd, I'll, I'll say um, about three to three to one, like a 33 percent chance it it, it fails today, which I think most people in, in Washington would be sort of shocked to hear. Wow. It is Friday the 13th. So. <laughs> that will help us, you <laughs> So see. round up, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's, that really is staggering, though. I yeah. mean, to think, yeah, about, it be. <clears throat> to think about where they've been for years. Well, after passing something like this 60 times. Yeah, right? like l- literally 60 vote. times. They've, they've, they've come after this, and they now that they have it, 
No, they've got the power. They might not get it done. And again, this is their first vote, the easiest one. It has yeah. nothing, you know, there's no, it's just basically voting for the idea of repealing Obama. You know, it's yes. almost like they're really bad at governing you guys. <laughs> almost. <laughs> or maybe a little bit disingenuous. Yeah. <laughs> well, disingenuous because they don't give a crap about whether or not there's a replacement because if they really cared right like they care about privatization of medicare and other things they yeah. would have like real robust legislation yeah. they could all get behind in a um in and do a real effort to get this through i mean the things they care about they are organized on and they do have real proposals to do real things here they want to get rid of the law because they want to check that mark for their yeah. Uh, base and they don't care about replacing it because they don't think government should and, have a role. And it's three years healthcare. later. And three years later, what ha what happened in three years? Do we still have power or not? Let's let's talk about it. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I mentioned this earlier on the show. Like Republicans sort of have a pretty uh, richly textured history of overplaying their hand. Yeah. <laughs> it started on day one on January 1st. Right, but like, I mean, they this has been something that they do with, with some regularity. I mean, Democrats are certainly guilty of this on some level, but I think Republicans, they're so fueled by their ideology so many times, and that's a lot of times just not where people are, that I think that it, if they go through with this, like, they're really going to shoot themselves in the foot. And uh, Congressman Mark Pocan was in here yesterday. He's, he said, again, not, I mentioned this earlier, not, not to be craven about this, but, like, this is an issue that Democrats can go out and they can win yeah. on. Yeah. And, and it's not all about politics. I get it. There are a lot of people who are going to be hurting and all that. But if we take it down to the very base level of what we do in hashtag this town, like. <laughs> it's trending. You said it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all it takes. Like. <laughs> They're going to they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I, I had a point, but then I was just, you know, looking into your eyes and I lost it. So that's how I it happens. With those, yeah. He's voting for you now. Out of it happens. <laughs> All right, we have two minutes and I'm gonna do what I think Gwen Eiffel used to do on Washington Washington Week. Washington Week. Washington yeah. Week. Go ahead. Which is have all three of you oh, predict the big story of next week. What do you think is going to happen next week that we're going to be talking about a week from now? Matt, for oh, congressional kicking reporter off me. for um, the Huffington Post. I was hoping Post. it wasn't going to come to me. Yeah. <laughs> what can we expect next week as we close oh, out man. this one? I mean, it, it's pre-inauguration week, so so there's, there is that. Um, I got to imagine Trump says something stupid in that intervening time. I mean, today he's doing his um, Safe bet. stuff with the... Uh, intelligence community things but i think obamacare he's going to make yeah. some sort of error in a tweet or whatever the hell and we'll be talking about that and like everyone's gonna again pushing this idea of like the simultaneous replacement <coughs> it seems sort of insane to me so uh, let's right. go with that adam smith director at every voice you better have a better answer <laughs> uh i think that Thanks, something man. will happen at inauguration uh there's gonna be a protest donald trump doesn't like or that protest on saturday will be bigger than the inauguration Ooh. and he it's gonna drive him crazy he's gonna do something that we all start talking about for a couple days by the way i'm leaving town for the inauguration Sorry. i am going to palm Springs on Thursday. Oh, lucky! So well, excited. Actually, sounds better than what I'm doing. Uh, Peter Ogburn, next <laughs> Igor, week. I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> I've looked into my crystal balls, yeah. and I can tell you, <laughs> you have more than one. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's healthy. Always have a spare. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's going to be a lot of inauguration talk. I think both of you guys are right. I think Trump is going to say something really stupid. 
I do. I do. It's going to be. I think it's a safe bet. I think, but I think, I think he is going to say something about the women's march because I think the women's march is going to get some attention next week, and I do think that there's a chance that the turnout for that will be bigger than the inauguration, and he's going to call a woman a horrible name or something like that. Just watch. It's amazing. There's going to be some random person does something dumb during the day. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 All right. That's the Bill Press show for this Friday, January 13th. Have a great weekend. I'm Mika Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, bye-bye. This is the Bill Press Show.